Steve and I are here. I'm Marshall Boland. I'm with Steve Douglas. This is In Goodwill, a podcast where we talk about politics and life issues from maybe different perspectives and maybe not, but we, we like each other and we want to make the world a better place for each other. But Steve and I have already been, right before I press the record button, talking about this subject of today, which is economics and how it's been affecting our lives. And I said, this is good stuff. Why don't we just start recording? Let's jump into it. Hi, Steve. Yeah. Hey, thanks, Marshall. Yeah, so um, we've been talking a little bit about economic theory and just uh, what it looks like in practice in our lives. And uh, there was a point where um, you said something and I said, well, this might be a place where we have a, a differing viewpoint. And, and you said, oh, let's, let's, let's start. Yeah, so that's, that's great. So, yeah. So for those of you who are tuning in, we, we actually are friends and we talk about things like this uh, for fun. Right. So uh, this is what floats our boat. Um, and, and we just think it's really important um, to have good, encouraging, uh, life-giving conversations with people of differing perspectives. And, um, and, and, we have a friendship that uh, fosters that and, and, yeah. and allows for that. Yeah. So I'm very thankful for that. And so today, yeah, we wanted to talk a bit about economics and maybe economic theory and its, and its application. So, so I think you mentioned earlier that, um, you know, you would like to see a world where there wasn't so much self-interest, um, that, that sort of we're looking out for one another. Right. The way I see it, the way money currently works, the, the rules by which money works, that, that, that we all say we agree to it or we imply that we agree to it, but not a lot of us have been asked if we'd like different rules for how money works. But anyway, the, the way that money works currently disincentivizes doing things for their own sake. Uh, if, if I'm interested in doing something that is a good in itself, and maybe it, it would be very helpful to the people around me, to the health of the planet, it doesn't really matter in our economic system whether it's a good in itself. What matters is that I can find a way to commoditize it. It's almost, uh, it's, it's sometimes under the surface, but for instance, if I went up to somebody at a party, you know, I'm just socializing with some people I don't know, and I said something like, I've been making money by uh, taking water out of uh, lakes and bottling it and selling it to people, like Nestle does. Uh, you know, there, there might be some people who have a feeling about that of like, oh, that's kind of not cool, but for the most part, people would say, oh, okay, cool. You know, you've found your, your place in society and you're making some money. But if I tell them what my, act my actual story is, that I look for ways that our current ideas are not serving us well in, in the realm of emotional health, in the realm of communication and in art, and I try to think what would be best for everybody what can I bring to people? How can I use my skills to um, find better ways that really work of recovering from emotional problems and that really work to resolve conflicts and uh, really 
presses art forward in a way that's going to be rich, enriching and uh, has a lot of vitality to it. Uh, people might be like, and, you know, how are you making money at this? Literally, people say that. And if I said, you know, and obviously I have trouble making money, I can tell sometimes that people have this attitude of like, well, cool, good for you, but, you know, you got to make some money somehow. And that's just, that's not right. That's, that's, it's like describing a disease as far as I'm concerned. When the things that are best for us are disincentivized by the way our system is set up. You know, you've got some really good points in there. Like, uh, and, and I think there are places where we can really agree. Like, um, I feel like when you're doing what you really love, you would be willing to do it for free, right? Right. Um, but we also know that uh, we can't l keep life going if we do everything for free. Um, right. And that's the challenge, right? I mean, that's the, that's the societal and worldwide challenge of um, uh, why currency is required, um, or at least some sort of trade of value. Uh, and, and, you know, people used to barter for things. Yes. And bartering worked to an extent, but, you know, say uh, I'm, I'm going to come over and uh, work on concrete. And uh, you say, you know what? I think that's worth three chickens, mm -hmm. but I don't want chickens. I I want a cow. <laughs> right. You know, like, that's what I could really use right now. I could use a cow. Yeah. Um, then what are we going to do? Somehow we got to find a third party and, and somebody who agrees that the cow and the three chickens are worth the same or some, there's some trade rate in there. Yeah. And then we figure all that stuff out. Um, which is why cash, you know, currency is helpful. And I know uh, we're getting maybe a little off course there, but. No, keep going with that. Yeah. Because so, I have something to say too. About okay. That. So, yeah, basically. Um, so if we can find a way and, and you know, we, currency at one point was tied to real value. Yes. Whether it was gold or it was silver or it was something else, now it's fiat currency, which just means the government and the markets uh, between um, uh, different markets around the world and how much debt a country carries, et cetera, factors into the valuation of its money. Yeah. Um, and so in a sense, they're bartering again, but they're just bartering with different currencies and valuating according to their economic output as a, as a nation um, and their interests as a nation, but there is self-interest involved. And so capitalism is really based on this idea of self-interest, you know, as a conservative capitalistic kind of guy, kind of, <laughs> um, I would say I don't really disagree with that. I don't think that that's necessarily wrong, but there's a difference between self-interest and selfishness. Certainly there's some amount of regulation that's necessary. And yet I don't know that we've done a, in some ways we over-regulate in some ways we under-regulate 
we've got governments that are very choosy about who they're going to support. And so you've got organizations, you've got um, agencies that receive and businesses that receive government aid or, you know, tax relief or whatever, and then others that don't enjoy that same thing. And it can seem really unfair. Um, and so in that case, I would say we don't have unfettered capitalism. We have overly regulated capitalism in that sense. Yeah. But then you've got companies that dump stuff into our environment that then aren't held accountable because of government interests. And there I would say we're under-regulated because real harm is done to the yeah. world around us. Or you've got a company that's moving toward a monopoly and and we're not applying antitrust to them and they're taking over everything. Self-interest can be a really good thing. You know, Adam Smith in his treatise on capitalism, he talked about an unseen hand yeah. uh, that I think he sort of was attributing to God. Um, Self-interest can only go so far before everybody else around realizes that it's unhealthy. It fall, it sort of cuts its own throat, you know, and then what he was proposing was we want to offer the best service or the best product at the lowest price that the, yeah. you know, so yeah. in a sense, what the market can bear for it and what people's interests are and everybody's self-interest, if allowed to, will help, figure out what this thing is actually valued at in the, in the society. Um, but then you get controls in and governments that come in and say, well, this is worth more than that is. And so we're going to, we're going to falsify, you know, or we're going to tweak things so that this gets promoted and that gets brought down. Yeah. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Um, all right. So you, you mentioned, our currency being tied to something real. It, the, the idea is that um, we can't trade cows very easily, so we're going to trade uh, a coin or something like that that represents the cow. One thing that has happened, and I, I learned this from a book called Sacred Economics that I really like by Charles Eisenstein. He's talking about the concept of usury, meaning lending money at interest. And so what happened was um, he, in the book, he uses this parable of somebody who shows up to a community like you were describing that was uh, trading actual chickens. And this man shows up and says, look at this. Instead of trading the actual chickens, I am going to cut out 10 rounds of hide. And now you can trade the rounds from the hide instead of the chickens in uh, gratitude for me showing you this, what I want is for every month you to bring me an 11th round. And so that's got to come from somewhere. Um, if we're saying that the currency we're trading represents something in the real world, if we're paying interest, then that means that we have to keep producing more even if there's no real good reason for it other than to keep paying interest to our creditors. So that necessitates infinite growth because we don't have infinite resources. Right. And so at first, you know, in, in this hypothetical parable, 
so what? You know, everybody wants to keep growing anyway, and there's nothing wrong with uh, paying this person for helping you have a better way of trading stuff. But if it, if it keeps happening and you start to run out of resources, well, now people are less likely to help each other because they have to keep paying this debt that is accruing. And it has led to where we are now, which is a society where everybody is scrambling to try to find a way to commoditize what they would love to do for free because they have to do something. To me, that's, uh, that has ruined my life and has ruined the life of mo you know, most of the people that I associate with. And it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, in fact, I mean, you can verify this as a pastor, there was a proscription against usury, right? In the Bible. And I, I remember reading C.S. Lewis, I think it was in Mere Christianity, pointing that out and saying, um, I think he was saying that um, Islam and Judaism also had proscriptions against usury. And he said that it was worth noting that we have founded our entire society on that. Yeah. And so that, that's worth an examination. So um, in scripture, it, it does uh, talk about for, for Jews, do not uh, lend to a fellow Israelite, you know, demanding interest. So don't do usury. Um, mm -hmm. And so that is factored into not just Judaism, but also Christianity and Islam and uh, coming from the same place and the same concept. What I think is interesting is that doesn't go for each other in the, from those groups, meaning, um, hmm. okay, so Christians aren't supposed to charge each other interest. Jews aren't supposed to charge each other interest. Muslims aren't supposed to charge each other interest, but they can charge the other group's interest. Hmm. And so what I think is so horrifying is, uh, because Christians became the the power brokers in Europe, um, and then you had the Crusades back and forth between Islam, you know, Muslims and Christians. Jews kind of got put in between the two, and were forced into the role of being the bankers and whatnot in offering oh. usury because Christians couldn't do that for each other. Interesting. Muslims couldn't do that for each other. So Jews became the go-between. Wow. But because they offered things at interest, they made money. Yeah. And so then jealousies created within Europe toward Jewish people, because here we are sort of suffering, you know, things have happened, wars have happened, all this stuff's going on. And here these guys are, are making money and they're making money off of us not realizing we forced them into that role. Yeah. And so they become a scapegoat throughout medieval times and even going into the 20th century. And of course we know of wow. what happened uh, with uh, Germany um, and using Jewish people as scapegoats um, for the, the degradation of the society. Wow. Um, and, and then of course, stealing uh, murdering and murdering and stealing from them. Yeah, um, we've we've taken money and removed it from the idea of being connected to something real. So now it's just this theoretical value, and everything else in 
nature, basically anything that would be bought or sold naturally decays. That's a part of nature. But in, in a certain sense, money doesn't decay. And even though, you know, you could get complex about it and say it decays with inflation and all that stuff, it decays less quickly than anything that money buys. And so that leads to the hoarding of it. It makes sense to hoard uh, a digital representation of how much money you technically have, uh, more so than hoarding objects of value or something like that. And so one idea that is intriguing to me is the idea of negative interest or uh, money that decreases in value over time. So that would incentivize the circulating of it. Yeah, get rid of it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's no good unless you spend it. Well, that's certainly interesting. Um, l- let me just, you know, we talked about the, the problems of usury yeah. that, that we saw and what it's led to in the world. Let, let me give the positive side on that for a moment. So yeah. let's say uh, you have money. Um, you have $100. And... Um, you can use that to live on, but it only goes so far. You can also save it. Maybe you've got other streams of income and this is just an extra $100 and you can hoard it um, and, and hopefully keep its value over time. But it's over time because of inflation, which is natural because of the degradation that you're talking about, um, uh, it's going to be worth less over time. So there's a little sense of that actually being the case. Yeah. Your hundred dollars now is not going to be worth the same hundred. Well, it'll be called a hundred dollars, but it's not worth the same amount in practice five years from now. In fact, I would say that if we look at commodities, um, think about how quickly things have changed since we got out of high school. Um, a gallon of milk is more than double the price. Um, oh, sure. You know, gasoline, yeah. you know, the, the, the basics that we build life with. Whereas we might say, oh, we haven't seen as much uh, degradation in the price of goods. But then you think, what are the goods made from? And so they've, they're actually more cheaply built yeah. And made not to last as long as they used to. Yeah. So that they can be offered at a similar price point as they were 20 years ago. Right. So you're actually getting a degradation as part of your society. So you take your $100. Another thing you can do with that is offer that $100 to somebody else. Let's say, uh, but you want that $100 back and and there is some self-interest in there. So what if I were to offer you $100 and you could use it, but I'd like my $100 back in a certain amount of, a reasonable amount of time. And for my troubles, because I'm out the $100 and you're going to use it, once you've produced something with it, I'd like a little something back. So maybe in the sense it's that 11th uh, circle of, of, of hide. Yeah. Uh, but um, the question is, is it, is that something that you feel like is a reasonable amount? Mm-hmm. So um, by virtue of us growing up in Edina, you know, spending time in Edina. Yeah. 
uh, I was offered a credit card right out of high school. And I think I remember it being like 7% interest. That seemed pretty good. Right. And I think over time I got that down, you know, I'd work with them and, you know, trade things around and finally got that work down to about 4% interest on that card. Right. It was awesome. And then a whole batch of things happened in the economy and they jacked it up to 17%. Right. And so I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. Like if I miss a payment, you know, I don't want to pay 17% on something that I worked really hard to bring down to four. Yeah. Um, so it's no longer reasonable to me. So I just, no more credit card. Now, uh, we I have a credit card, but I make sure I pay that off. You know, all that stuff. So I'm not paying those amounts. But, you know, I find it reasonable to invest in something to get a slight return back on it. And what it does is, let's say it's more of a direct thing. I, I offer it to a business they're able to invest that along with other people's $100 to create a machine that produces widgets. Mm -hmm. And they go and they sell those widgets and they make a good amount of money back. Then they're willing to pay me back my $100 and they say, thank you um, for your trouble. I'm going to give you, um, you know, 10 bucks more than the 100. You know, that's 10% interest. Right. That's pretty good on, on the money I gave. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think it can be a really, really good thing. Um, where it gets into trouble, I think, is when you've got businesses that um, they're only looking at the investor portfolio side of things and saying, okay, we got to do everything that we do for the sake of the investor and their interest. Right. And so paying dividends. And so we got to work for the quarter to make sure that everything's always better and better and better and better so that we're paying out uh, better returns so that we get more investors in. So now you're just working for the incentive of money, money in, money out, and the widgets take a back seat. Right. And so I want the better widget as a consumer. Yes. You know, and I wish they'd focus on building me a better widget. I don't really care about the thousand investors over there who've put money in and what they're going to get out at the end of the quarter. I want the better widget. Right. Yeah. Planned obsolescence is, well, it's not exactly what you're talking about, but it's adjacent to it. It's part of it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's another thing that is, disincentivized by the way money works. It's not in companies' interest to build things that last longer and therefore, you know, tax our resources less because how are you going to keep making money? Well, you have to have things that don't last as long. To me, this comes down to the bottom line. This economic stuff is complex. It is. I just think if we had a, a different bottom line, which is what, what is good, how can we care for each other? How can we make the world a place where each person says, yeah, I'm being supported here. I, I want every person to know that they are supported. I see an, uh, an incompatibility with that bottom line and the bottom line of profit for its own sake. Yes. And, and I'd agree with you. reminding me of, of Jesus. You know, you can't serve two masters. So what did you learn that mammon translates to? as a pastor, as a theology student? Uh, that uh, I, I think it was the name of a demon 
that uh, was basically tied to fortune yeah. uh, in that culture. And so he's basically saying you can't serve God and the demon of fortune. Uh, and, you know, we the, the cognate of that would be Latin fortuna, you know, the goddess fortuna. But the idea that... Uh, that we're really talking, and, and many translations just say you can't serve God and money, that we're making an idol out of money. Like, and, and some people might go, idol, what are you talking about? We've moved past that. Um, what I mean is um, where our hearts are at and what our mind stays on. Like, what do we elevate and call worth our time, our attention, our life devotion? Mm, yeah. Um, is it God? Is it ourselves? Is it money? Is it fame? Is it the way people view us? You know, it could be any number of, of things that we make our life about. Right. And that becomes worth our attention, uh, our time use um, and our investment, uh, both from our pocketbook and and hopefully and maybe what we're drawing back in, what we're hoping to draw back in. Yeah. So uh, what Jesus is basically saying is, where's your heart at? Where where's your mind at? What are you What are you concentrating on? Are you concentrating on making profits, or are you concentrating on doing what God wants you to do and caring for other people? And, yeah. and, you know, being a devoted person to his will and mission. Yeah. I like a, what Jesus has to say in general <laughs> and about economics. And to me, I mean, based on the what I have gotten from Jesus, I really don't think he would be in favor of an economic system that says, let's make it easier to get money if you already have it. And let's make it hard to get money if you don't have it. Right. And so, you know, at, in a political conversation, I can already hear, uh, not you, I mean, we talk about this all the time, but plenty of people who, who are just triggered immediately. They think that this means we're heading towards uh, Stalinist communism, if you even question the idea of this. I mean, if you are a, a biblical person, if you're a caring person, and you think about the, uh, what is it, Corinthians or Corinthians 2, the the um, description of love that is shared at almost every wedding. Yeah. Uh, First Corinthians 13. Yeah. First Corinthians, Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Right. Uh, to me, why don't we use that as a starting place for how our agreements of how money works should be? So what's interesting is that chapter on love is not about male female romantic relationships right it actually is about how we keep relationships in the body of christ called the church mm -hmm. um so believing people who've devoted their lives to following jesus how do you treat one another well with love well what does that look like well love is patient love is kind love does not envy love doesn't boast love doesn't keep records of wrongs uh it doesn't seek its own way etc 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 well that has huge implications on how we deal with money it has huge implications on how we deal with our stuff um you know do do my things belong to me in one sense yes and in one sense no right um, 
do I have to give them all away in the sense of actually like physically placing them in the hands of somebody else and just going, take it? Not necessarily, but how do I bless the people around me with what I've been given? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's another approach to a more gift oriented style of economy. Maybe the most resources, most resources should flow most easily. First of all, to, to whoever needs it, like who, whoever has the most need should have the, um, the greatest influence. They, their voices should be the loudest, but also maybe resources should flow easily to whoever's giving the most. So right now, resources flow to whoever has the most, whoever's best at uh, keeping it, at hoarding it. And uh, that doesn't help anybody. It's like, a, it's like a blood clot or something like that in a circulatory system. But if somebody is uh, generous and they are empowering lots of other people, well, that's a good place to send resources because from there it will go out and send more resources. And to me, this describes like life, like a life-giving process. Yeah. I'm, I'm coming at it from a Christian viewpoint. Uh, you know, I serve as a pastor, um, and, and that's what the Bible describes. So, God is saying to those who invest in the kingdom, and not in the sense of back toward ourselves, but in the sense of the mission and blessing the world around us, to those people who are giving it away and, and using their resources to bless other people, he's going to bless. Yeah. As you give, you will receive. And that is a divine, miraculous sort of way. And, and for those of you who question, you know, um, like, ah, I don't know if I believe that stuff. I'll just say that I've seen it in operation in my own life. Um, and so which has caused me to sort of go, I really do need to live that way. What I've noticed is as I'm faithful at giving away, not just in like the collection plate, but like in very real ways of blessing neighbors, blessing friends, blessing uh, out into the world as there are needs. Sometimes just money shows up. Like somebody comes along and just says, you know, I just think you need this and puts money in my hand. It happened recently. So let me just say one more thing, like um, our dryer started to make some real racket and is sort of on its last legs. And somebody came along and I never talked with anybody about it. I didn't say boo to anybody. And somebody came along and put just a note in my hand and inside that note, was enough to buy a dryer. Beautiful. Where does, how, what, <laughs> yeah. huh? Okay. You know, like, thank you, Lord. Yeah. Um, somebody might say, that's just coincidence. I don't think so. I mean, that happens regularly enough that I go, thank you. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know. Yeah. And I, I'm really on the same page with that. Um, my role in this podcast is I, I want to make sure that I, bring the atheists and the skeptics along on my side. Sure. Um, but I mean, that is something that is kind of how I live and it, it has worked out. I, so what I, what I think is a problem is if we have a, an economy that disincentivizes giving, hmm. 
then that kind of um, miraculous, you know, uh, reproduction of the loaves and fishes, multiplication is the word I was looking for, multiplication of the loaves and fishes is going to be more scarce. Right now, the way that money works creates artificial scarcity. Uh, I suffer from that all the time. Here's an example. Like on my credit report, there is no category for how much I gave. It's not taking into consideration whether I am actually contributing to the world. It only takes, it only keeps account of did I pay my bills and am I in trouble? What if I saw somebody who really needed something and I had a choice between paying my electric bill and uh, really saving somebody's life or really improving somebody's life? And, you know, the electric bill would get paid later, but now I'm late on it. Well, okay, now I have bad credit. And when I try to go get something that I need, they keep bringing this up. But there is no category for, wow, you really helped somebody who needed something. Yeah. There, the, we have a society that is less likely to look at virtue as it is uh, to penalize for failure. Or at least it's measurement of failure. Yeah. 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 I mean, I feel like progressives, your stereotypical progressive is open to the idea of altering the way that money works. And when I have these conversations or just, you know, hear political conversations on, in the media or whatever between conservatives and progressives, it just it always seems like progressives or uh, conservatives are immediately scared of if you change, if you start thinking about the way that money works, we're going to have a totalitarian communist regime. And I don't want that. And none of my progressive friends want that. What we want is actual equity. We, we want people to be empowered and to be able to care for each other without having to pay somebody who already has more than they need before we can do what we you know care about. Sure. And I think Many conservatives would say similar things. I think we would kind of agree with that. I think where, where the disagreement comes is when we make this about policies. So yeah. once it hits the government level, how we move forward then makes a big difference. So um, I think we'd all agree like it would be great if everybody operated that way where where we see needs and we fill needs you know like yes. hey i see my neighbor suffering i'm going to go do something about that let's yeah. care for our neighbor um but we also recognize that that doesn't always happen um either that nobody happens to see the neighbor's suffering or um maybe uh there's um Maybe I'm a jerk and I don't care. And so then they fall through the cracks. And so then we sort of say something needs to happen. So the government needs to get involved. And now we need to raise taxes to be able to care for the suffering in the community because our community is not doing it voluntarily for themselves. Yeah. Now at that point, many conservatives will start to go, I'm starting to get uncomfortable with that. 
And then where is all of that tax money going? It, sometimes it goes to programs that we don't agree with. And, um, you know, one big hot button issue is going to be abortion. Um, so um, all of us, as we pay in, some of that goes to Planned Parenthood. And as a conservative uh, believer in Jesus Christ, and uh, I believe that, um, that life starts at conception and that every life is precious. And, and then there will be all kinds of things to debate and maybe another uh, podcast. But, um, um, but you know, the, the idea that some of the money that I'm paying into the pot is going to things that I vehemently disagree with. Yeah. I, you know? Can, can we start this conversation as conservatives and progressives from this shared need? Because that's a, a major complaint of progressives, too. Uh, we are horrified that our tax dollars go towards so much military spending. Mm. Even though somebody like me who is kind of um, gambling that things will turn out okay if I vote for progressive policies, still, I know that there's all kinds of government jobs that don't really do that much. They exist just for their own sake and our, our money is getting siphoned off. And a lot of those things could be cut out or privatized and we'd be the better for it. Uh, so that's a real thing. And I think any honest progressive is going to say, yeah, we, that's probably something we should address. So um, what, what, how could we do this? What would it look like to have each person have more say over what their money goes towards? Mm. Yeah, you know, and, and that is a really complicated, you know, it's a really complex issue is I think that's why we have representatives is to talk through those things and to create better bills, um, you know, to Congress. But you know how our system works is they can, the other side can put riders on it. And so maybe we disagree on the rider. And so then that shoots down the whole thing. And sometimes that's done strategically. We're going to attach 13 riders you don't want onto something we don't want in order to sink it. Yeah. And that happens all the time. And so there, there are definitely some complex issues um, that are hard to deal with, but I think having, better conversations, uh, better public conversations, having the town square, so to speak, yeah. uh, kind of a thing is really healthy uh, as long as we can have respectful dialogue. Yeah. And to keep going back to those needs that, we, that are the same. Yeah. So um, you and I disagree on abortion laws, probably. If we get bogged down in that position, in this conversation... Uh, we'll never get anywhere. Right. But what we can do is say, okay, one thing that is a shared unmet need is that both of us are horrified that our money is going to uh, causes that are not in line with our values. Right. So what, how can we create a world where people's money is going to causes that are in line with their values? Yeah. And I would love mm -hmm. to see a conservative progressive collaboration. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I, 
I do think that it, it's worth some podcasts on military and uh, yeah. uh, and on uh, abortion and some of those those issues. Certainly, but but yeah, sometimes it's helpful to go. Okay, w- we know we have areas of disagreement, but where do we have areas of agreement and common need? And so I really appreciate that. I appreciate you saying that. And I wish more conservatives and more progressives on both sides would be willing to do that. Um, and and yeah, sometimes we might get hung up on on the point, on the thing, yeah. you know, our, in our talking points. But uh, if we can do that respectfully, I think we can at least move the dial a little bit toward a healthier thing and maybe uh, take a few minutes off the doomsday clock, so to speak, in our society. Yeah. And also, uh, when we do talk about abortion or military issues, we'll do the same thing then. Uh, We'll look for those shared unmet needs. Right. But in this particular issue, we can still, we can have our own disagreements about abortion and, and at the same time agree, I don't want you to be forced to put your money towards something that's not in line with your values. Yeah. I do not want that for you. Right. Or anybody. And, you know, and, and we might say we'd have differing perspectives on what a government is for. Sure. So I, I had a conversation with uh, somebody just the other day and they were saying, you know, Government is only here to defend the freedom of its citizens. Mm -hmm. So in their viewpoint, a large military is probably a good thing when, when it comes to the world stage. But then they're also very against large government and the government's possible use of the military toward the populace. Sure. And so um, we got into a conversation on gun hoarding and, mm-hmm. and ammunition hoarding, and, and they were sort of for it. And I was like, mm, is that what we're called to as Christians? You know, that sort of a thing. Yeah. Um, and, and so more debate points are definitely involved in that. But when you've got aggressive other nations that um, their interests are different than your nation's interests, at some point, we have to have military spending. At the same time, can, have we overdone it? Well, when we've got more aircraft carriers than the next, what is it, five or six militaries, you know, nations yeah. um, all combined, and uh, there's only one other nation that has a nuclear aircraft carrier and all of ours are like the amount of money that we're putting into this complex and the idea that we're policing the world, maybe that needs to be reviewed. Yeah. And I would like it if I was consulted on it, on how my money is getting spent. Uh, It might be the case that if I knew the facts, I wouldn't change anything, but I think I probably would. And I guess this is one way that I, have a lot of overlap with conservative ideas. I mean, I think we could call a spade a spade and say taking somebody's money without them agreeing is wrong. And that's what taxation is. And so I I understand the inherent contradiction in my voting behavior and that belief, but uh, 
uh, kind of my voting behavior comes from having friends in Scandinavia. They're, they're pretty socialist. They get taxed a lot, but then nobody pays for anything. And I'm totally okay with that. I don't usually hear about a major trade-off in the Scandinavian countries. <laughs> People who are terrified of socialism, just the word socialism, they point to like, you know, Russia and China and Venezuela and stuff. And it's just a different animal. It, it is a different animal. And, and those are easy, low-hanging fruit kind of arguments. I, you know, I, I, there, there's some validity to them, but like, if we were to look at all of the things behind it, there's a lot of complexity to it. And there's oftentimes racial issues and there's socioeconomic issues and there's military issues and there's uh, outside uh, of the nation world power issues going on. And so sanctions and, and other uh, interests being applied to them and battling back and forth between Russia and China and the United States for Venezuela and their yeah. interests in their oil and, and uh, government interests in trying to take over the oil industry in Venezuela. You know, just yeah. uh, th there's so much that goes into that. And then we could look at before that and say like um, the, the Central and South American rise of communism uh, and the revolts uh, there. And why did that happen? Well, um, because power and money was being hoarded by the wealthy and there were Spanish or, or uh, you know, European interests or U.S. interests that had bolstered those things up. And so it artificially created an overclass. Um, and then before that, slavery. I mean, there's just yeah. so much that goes into this over periods of time that we need to sort of examine all the layers. And, and it can become so complex that we just finally go, ah, yeah. How do we have a real conversation you know, nation by nation or, you know, and, and so Sweden and Norway and Finland um, are Denmark. generally, yeah, they're, they're generally very homogenous. Yeah, that's true. Um, and have very few areas of work, meaning um, they have definite zones of GDP, of mm. output, mm -hmm. Um so it, I think it's easier for them to create a more equitable society across the board. I don't want to make that simplistic either. There, there's stuff that goes into that, but um, I think it's an easier thing than if they were being oppressed by other foreign interests and there were, you know, different racial uh, castes almost that were going on within society, um, which we definitely have in the United States. And yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to make some arguments and mm -hmm. I want to hear your take on it sure. and what you think other conservatives takes on it would be. Okay. So in, you know, just uh, conversations in the break room at work or whatever, when I talk about the idea of a more um, Scandinavian form of a social safety net, uh, the reaction I get is, oh my God, authoritarian communism. And I don't want that. And 
I don't know. I don't have a single progressive friend who does want that. You know, all of the people who are um, who have attended the George Floyd protests. Uh, a lot of these people are progressive, and uh, even anarchists. And if there's that strong of a reaction towards the status quo of policing, there would be, I think, I hope I'm not optimistic, but it just makes sense to me that there would be that much more <laughs> of a response to an actual authoritarian regime. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. We're going to split this conversation into two episodes. So stay tuned for part two of our economics conversation next week. See you then.